everyone. Howdy. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. We call him Baby Brent today, but he's here with us. Baby Brent? Baby Brent, because in our previous attempt at starting the podcast, you pissed me off. So now you're, <laughs> now you're Baby Brent for a while. <laughs> what episode are we, Brent? 60. Gosh, dang. 60. That's awesome. 60. Nice round number. If we were a professional podcast, we would have like a special episode every fifth or tenth episode. But Brent, are we a professional podcast? We are not. Or are we? Because we have, if you go onto the website, gone to our Slack channel, gone anywhere else, we have a logo. Woohoo! We have a new A-B testing logo that isn't something A, Alan, made in Word three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that the logo... So, first off, the logo is quite cool. The logo is very cool. But I would argue... Right, we still only have three listeners. The logo is just lipstick on a pig. Fake <laughs> it until you make it. But if you like it, it was done by a wonderful Alexa Horn, uh, who also did my Angry Weasel logo. And so, uh, if you're interested in any graphic design work, I'm happy to uh, send you her way. It's great, easy to work with. Great job. I'm very, very happy. I. Uh, and that was not a paid promotion. I have in my hand as well some stickers that Alan has produced. Designed also by Alexa. Designed also by Alexa. Um, it's intended for, if you're one of the three, uh, we have soon to come the ability to proudly emblazon your laptop. your Or any, any place you want to put a sticker. Right. If you are a member of the Slack channel, Alan has already given those folks the opportunity to get uh, one of these stickers sent their way. And if you want to join the Slack channel, just contact me. Yep. I'm fine. I could, I could send you to Percy on Twitter, but I can just take care of it. And I'll, I'll get you set up. And then in that, if you're familiar with Slack, there's a channel called I Want a Sticker. And if you want a sticker, you go to I Want a Sticker, put your address, and you get one sent to you. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And soon to come... Well, we'll we'll open this up on the website. We'll figure something out. Yep, we'll get our little uh, little A/B testing shop going. But the the process of getting the the new logo first off, I am extremely happy with it. Me too. And the process of it was a, a lot of fun. It was. It was. I don't want to do like the total Alexa fanboy here, but same with the Angry Weasel logo. She joined the Slack channel. She listened to the podcast. She got an idea of who we were and then used that for inspiration. She, and we bounced ideas back and forth. It was a super collaborative, really awesome experience. It was. It was. Okie dokie. So you know how else we aren't professional? Well, in many, okay, we're many, riddled with many, ADHD. <laughs> the equipment always fails. <laughs> no, uh. it, well, it's because we're in this crappy Microsoft building where the power outlets don't work. How about you pay your bills? Uh, so Brent, we have this. We always make a nice little uh, Kanban to-do list uh, agenda, spur of the moment, on the whiteboard. And I realized walking in here, as with as much spit and vigor I left, leaving 59, ready to continue it, I don't feel very prepared today. But I think that'll probably change as soon as Brent says something that there's like a magic word or phrase you'll use that'll set me off and we'll be back off to the races again. Fugelhorn. 
That's not it. <laughs> ah, okay. What is a fugelhorn? I don't know. I know what a flugelhorn is. Okay, that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I don't know what that is either. Hey, uh... <laughs> I want to put this out there for all of the three and your friends. If you have a friend who can breathe and whose first name starts with the letter B, I will be accepting applications for someone I can stand. Oh, gosh. All right. One thing I want to talk about. We did negative one. So rather than reorder, we just started going backwards. So – uh, on angerweasel.com, WAC AB testing, where we host this, the the podcast, I put a, I'm drawing with my hand, which is useless on the podcast, but a little web submission form where you can submit a mailbag request. No need for an email address. No need to join the Slack channel. It's going like, I have a question for these fools. Just go throw it in there. So far, I, I put it up unannounced and I've, we've had three submissions Two were spam, and one was a regular question, which we'll probably get to next week. But keep those coming in. Uh, if we get a lot, we'll just do an all-mailbag show, which we have done once before, right? Once or twice, yeah. Maybe, wow, yeah. But this is not technically an all-mailbag show, but Brent has insisted that we start off with the mailbag. Yes, so we have been recently talking about what a tester's role is, and that, Alan, is that what? Could have, that could have been the magic word. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go on. Right. So what's a tester's role, Alan? Uh, it depends who you ask. Ask 10 people, get 11 answers. Yeah. What's the tester's role, Alan? Accelerate the achievement of shippable quality. Thank you. <laughs> Boom. I said, yeah. And Michael Rocha on the Slack channel asked, "Is it now? I have to be. Is it Rocha or Roca?" He'll correct I'll us. I'll go with one of those. All right. Sorry, but the question is the important part. He's asked, "Can we break down?" What is accelerating the achievement of shippable quality? Now, last episode, we, towards the end of it, really started to get on a rant on... on Ish, a little bit. Little on bit. sort of what our view of modern testing is. And, and when considering this question, as well as how we ended the last episode, it occurred to me that in my mind, yeah, they're very much aligned. Can I share with you, Alan, sort of the, the thoughts on what I think answers this question? Well, because you asked, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So then just, on to topic two. Just, <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> at, a, at a high level, if we break down accelerating the, of shippable quality as well as sort of merge it with modern testing, I think the very first – an important tenant on this is quality is only defined by the customer. I agree with that. It is not defined by the PM who wrote the requirements doc. And but it's let's just dive into all this stuff because yeah, 
because the uh, I agree with that, but the way I've put that before is software quality is only what's perceived by the customer. That's the, fine too. The only reason I pa- I pause with your definition is the customers don't know what quality is, so they can't actually define it. Right. <laughs> so it's so you have to read between the lines a little bit, and it's and just know that whatever you do, whatever. And the way I've put this in the past is customers don't give a shit if you have 90% code coverage. Nope. <laughs> nope. Well, and, and, and I, I think I put that in a presentation. Oh, I remember I gave uh, tangent time. I gave a presentation on metrics once and I, and I, I made a big deal out of complaining that customers don't give a crap about those things, but moved into, of course, telemetry and things like that. Anyway, uh, yep. back to the Brent show. <laughs> <laughs> to piggyback further on that one. It, it, so, if quality is only defined by the customer, then what is quality in their point of view? And, and I, I like Tom Poppendike's guidance on this is quality is a problem solved. I don't want to go too deep on the, the uh, my view on the tenets of what makes up quality. Um, if people want to hear that or they want to have a view to it, they can go to my, my blog page. Uh, site I've I've written that up yeah and and many 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 philosophizings on the internet around what is quality which we don't want to go into no another point of the story where where I came to this conclusion was was back in the day and having multiple arguments within Microsoft around Google and Bing. Google, when it first came out, just shipped bugs all the time. And a lot of the people, this is when I was still in a Mm -hmm. test role, Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that I would be talking to would have the approach that Google was just a fad. Look at all the bugs they shipped. I'm like, if bugs were important to customer quality, then I would be expecting to see Google's stock price uh, tank, not a skyrocket, which is what we're observing. <laughs> yeah. It's essentially Google was was an innovator in terms of solving a problem with respect to search and uh, an innovator on leveraging their data instrumentation to identify what is causing the most customer pain and reship. The second tenant that I'll say that this piggybacks. So don't, don't you want, and I know you have some, and I always worry when Brent writes things out because, because then Brent just kind of reads and, and we get lost, but I want to talk about that one. Okay. Because I think, go ahead. Theoretically, I, I, this is your podcast too. I was going ahead. <laughs> the visualization I came up with, like, it's like our brains have a, uh, an idea we're going with, but these, squirrels and trains and things go by and we look at them and go, oh, look at that. That's cool. So uh, back to this. Yes, we've... The reality is, though, it is cool. Squirrels are fun to watch. They are. You mentioned uh, quality is problem solved. Yep. And bugs can get in the way if they block you from solving that problem or make solving that problem unpleasant or more difficult than it should be. Yes, and for sure. We all know that software ships with known bugs. Well, you do now. And some of those do block problem solve, but many of them they never customers never see. Is a bug that a customer never finds a bug? If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, doesn't make a sound. 
Is a bug that the customer never finds a bug? They never, ever see it. Yeah, it's a bug. Is it one that we care about fixing? No. All right. (laughs) Depends on your definition. Okay, I'm good with that. All right, go on, Brent, with the rest of your list. In my view, so combining accelerating the shipment or the achievement of shippable quality uh, and modern testing, that one of the tenants is shipping and iterating is the best way to get to shippable quality. Say that again. Shipping mm-hmm. and iterating correct, is yeah. the best way to get to shippable quality. You will initially ship something that you know is not shippable quality. So my goal in working on a team that was shipping every week, I'm a little bit um, – so in the past – uh, when I've uh, worked on products that have shipped frequently, the goal was always not to make it bug-free, not to, nor to try and shove a bunch of crap in. The goal was simply ship as often as we can, but every release is better than the one before. Yes. Defined as, defined how. Oh, more, more customer value. Yes. The, I'm glad you asked that because that's really important. It's like, what is better? And I, more value. And that could be another feature. It could be some important bug fixes, either visible or invisible bug fixes. Uh, I think it's important to, differ- to differentiate. The visible bug fixes uh, can be can feel much more minor like because the, it could be like a 5 or 10 or 15-minute fix on the on. The engineering side, but they make a lot of difference in fit and finish to the customer. Whereas uh, you need to balance those with fixing like the infrastructure type things, like fixing performance issues that may be subtle for customers, but uh, the architecture change may be better in the long run. So you need to balance both the invisible and visible bug fixes and give them value with like, here's a new feature. Value isn't 50 new features. Value isn't just fixing 50 bugs. I want perceivable customer value improvement with every release. It can be subtle, and they may not see it because it's so gradual because they're shipping so often, but that's uh, always my goal. And then you, and if you ship 50 times a year and every release is better, at the end of the year, you should have a, a fairly good product. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the trick in those things is figuring out how to measure it. Um. It's not the trick. It's it, to me. It's 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 the fun part. It's oh, it's uh, for sure. <laughs> this is. I know we're going to talk about modern testing in a little bit, but this is sort of a shift in what testers do, and maybe talk about the test rule. What are some things testers do to accelerate the achievement of shippable quality? Uh, one of the things we do is to figure out how to measure those things. Yes. Yeah, I mean, let me so let me quickly go through what I think uh, is the next most important tenant on this one, and let's just dive okay. deep into the modern test. Sure, sure, sure. No, no, right. I just I the the, the train uh, went by <clears throat> to squirrel on top of the balloon, and I just kind of went with it. Yeah, I'm envisioning that now. <laughs> what Brent, color balloon, Brent? Don't think of an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, look at the squirrel. He's carrying a balloon. Ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Calendar time. So the phrase is talking about acceleration, right? Um, 
So if we're talking about how do we get to shippable quality, how do we iterate, how do we measure, what is, what is, what is the key source of signal that we're going to use a measure, and that's some sort of heuristic around customer satisfaction, customer quality, then you got to realize that calendar time is the single most important resource to any engineering team. Correct. It, Clock on the wall. There's a clock on the wall, and there has to be a sense of urgency, a sense of not just velocity. This is why it's acceleration, because as you learn more, your comp competition is learning more, and you have to take that knowledge and feed it back into the system to be able to scale and increase the rate at which you're adding value to the customer. Aha, uh -huh. yes. Now, this is in particular in the services world, right? Uh, it, this is one of the key problems in the modern world. It is particularly relevant in the services world. There is this item called switching cost, and no matter what you publish to the web, you have a competitor and your customers can go to it near instantly. Everyone does free trials. There's no uh, onboarding costs for, for most of these assets. It's really hard to be a monopoly in the service space today. Mm -hmm. You only win by being better. Circle back to the customer quality. Now, let's talk about modern testing in this light maybe a little or do bit you have more? I, I, i've been thinking just about i i've been thinking while you've been talking yep one of the reasons i think we have such healthy competition in so many i'm gonna give an example in a second across so many different things that we use something interesting i've uh, just come across and i and i and impairing it with what you're talking about is quality is problem solved is why are there, I'll ask this rhetorically, why are there six at least or 10 different solutions to solve my problem? Because all of our problems aren't the same. They're not. And it's interesting. So one story I'll share is I am, I do not miss Outlook at all. It's very full featured, lots of lots and lots of features, but very slow, very much a pig and not that much fun to use. So when I left Microsoft, I mail at Unity is all Gmail based, but I kind of like having a mail client, especially a un I wanted a unified mail client because I have four different mail accounts I use uh, fairly frequently. I'm not going to list them here, but there's four. And I wanted a unified mail client. So I looked and there were half a dozen or so and some were pay and some were free. And I tried them all out and found the one that solved my problem. And I love it. It's been great for me. Just yesterday, I was having some problems. So that's one example. Everybody's and somebody will say that doesn't work for me, and that's fine. It's really cool. This is where this is why uh, none of those programs will ever become a monopoly. I was having some problems with Evernote, so I was looking for uh, alternatives. And coincidentally, somebody who I've met and talked to a lot over the past, I met him when I was at Yahoo, and then he went somewhere else, and then he went somewhere else, and now he's been at, he, he sent me a DM, he's at Evernote, and said, I'm going to solve your problem. <laughs> so a uh, uh, little, little side tangent on the power of the network. But I got a lot of great suggestions on alternatives 
Uh, one's practically an Evernote clone, uh, and others are even lighter weight. And of course, there's OneNote from Microsoft. But again, I'm not, I'm not avoiding Microsoft. I'm avoiding fat things. Uh, I prefer to work in a web browser most of the time. And I honestly, I think the web browser experience in all of the other ones is better than the OneNote web experience. OneNote as a desktop app is actually pretty fantastic. It's just a, just a lot for what I need. It just made me, I just was thinking about as I've looked for like a new tool, a new code editor. Why are there 16 different uh, code editors you can use? Because they solve problems for different people in different ways. It's, it's well, there's, there's, a, there's two reasons for that. Right, and and we had this problem uh, back in the day when, essentially, when you and I first met. Like one of the problems that was dominant around there, you you bring um, ten testers in a room, ask them to build uh, a unified test harness. Oh God! You would walk out with at least twelve different yeah, designs. But, but, but none of those really could claim problem solved. No, it, it's in a problem. <laughs> <laughs> the the problem is because, or the reverse. So, um, we used to have a very vibrant uh, internal uh, tool submission uh, system, and multiple times, I would find a tool that did eighty percent what I needed, but I didn't have source code access. I would ping the owner, and they would say, "No, I can't add that." featured for you and because I'm worried. If you were lucky and they were still at the company. Yeah. And because I worry about the code base um, uh, morphing into two different versions, uh, I won't give you the source code so you can add this feature. And because I'm busy, I won't give you the source code and allow you to submit a check-in. Right. This is Idiocy. The The point of the story is the reason why there's multiple versions is a lot of times there's a, a current solution and someone realizes, you know what, there's one other thing I need and no one does it. And then they often get forced to rebuild from the ground up. I think it's different, though. And I want to get to modern testing. I think it's different. I mean, internally at Microsoft, especially and, and granted, they're much better now at sharing and, and, yeah. and consolidating. But at that time, it was more about, I mean, there was a checklist item on the career stage profile or ladder level, whatever it was at the time for like at senior, you've written a test harness. So there there was a lot of career advancement motivation more than solving the problem. I think when uh, with a code editor or a uh, mail program or a note ticking application, I think the founders of those companies, they, I think we can solve this problem better than anyone else has, or at least in a different way. And they're going to, and they create those things for that reason as a founder of a company or if i have an idea that already exists i'm not i think it's ridiculous to think i'm going to take over the market from all my competitors evernote never set out to we're going to take over the world from one note they're gonna go there's a whole bunch of people that need to take notes that i think our solution will be better for same thing with Mailbird. My mail application was Sublime Text. They solved the problem in a way, in a slightly different way, that's going to work better for some chunk of people, and that's where their business comes from. I think at at uh, when you're talking about writing a test harness, it's not they're not doing it for that reason. That the reason people internally would write a test harness or a, or a tool like that or a data pipeline crap is. <laughs> Have I said here before that I'll drink here, but uh, the data pipeline is the new test harness? For sure. 
<laughs> um, uh, so anyway. Although, at least it, in, um, in my neck of the woods, that's tapering way back, much faster. No, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. But um, you get where I was going. So let's yeah. let's pop the stack a little bit. Um, I could elaborate there, but you no, know where so I'm let me, going. Let me, let, me, let me piggyback off of that and say, right, what, Wait, what the, started... What pi- started, Piggybacking is pushing onto the stack. Yeah, hold on. Do you have a go-to coming up? Shut up. Calendar time is critical. Like, uh, uh, like oh yeah, we were talking about we, that. We we learn. I mean, we learned this fascinating email story uh, because uh, I stated calendar time is critical, and a big part is switching costs is super cheap. Alan can explore all of the email clients plus the other fifty he hasn't played with yet in easily a span of a day. Right. Correct. Now, that's today's world. But what's the world we're heading into? And you can see this progression if you if you look at where we came from. Um, so Web 1.0, right? What was that all about? It was about connecting together knowledge content. Right. It was created primarily in colleges so that people could link together ideas. Sure. Web 2.0, right? What was that? That's typically where the social media is. It's now also linked together not only the ideas, but linked together people. Yes. Ideas that aren't written down might be a way of putting it, right? Um now, Web 3.0 mobile is the, is the place where we're at right now. And uh, if you look on the web, um, people are already talking about the beginning of the end for smartphones, right? The, the, the mobile situation is, um, by some people's belief, is beginning to already plateau. Right, so so what was the point of of this aspect is hey, you can now connect with knowledge whether it's being linked or whether it's between the ears of your peer group anywhere you want to be. Okay. The next thing that's that's that is is already starting to be in flight is dynamic context. It's essentially Alan goes to whatever the hell he wants to go to, and he says, I want emailing services, and in in an ML world, the system would just go, oh, okay, I know from how Alan's uses pattern that these are the features he likes. Um we, uh, I've, I've connected the dots to you. Like you need these features. Um, these are all the REST APIs that, that exist across the, the web space. We know how to integrate it together. We know from prior uh, interactions, this is the, the, the UI that we need to tunnel all of the stuff to, and it just works. 
right? And that seems nearly impossible today. A lot of it doesn't because I think machine learning can definitely look, it's to be different for every person. Going back to everyone has different needs. Yep. There is easily, you could look at the way I handle email, the what, what I reply to, what I delete, what I ignore. It wouldn't take too much machine learning based on my behavior patterns to be very, very accurate on predicting exactly what my optimal experience is. I think the next most important advancement that will exist in the testing world is breaking away from least common denominator solutions. Like the next big thing to come is an is an active expectation that a vibrant personalization of what I as an individual care about is what's important. That's really interesting because we've heard forever and I've said it for myself, when you try and solve all the problems for everyone, you solve none of the problems for no one. And that's a paraphrase on, uh, uh, there's many paraphrasements of that, Yep. but it gets away from that. It says we can use uh, machine learning, AI, whatever, and we can automatically customize your experience with these, your software experiences to work the best for you based on how you work and what your problem is. Go back to problem solved. Uh, it's automatic machine-driven customization of solving your problem. Yeah. Now, easy. The machine. Now, how do you test that? How do you test that? And I know the answer. How? If, if your testing prowess is still based off of uh, 80% based off of the learnings you, you, you gathered from 1998, how are you going to get there from here? You have to start using your brain instead of 10-year-old techniques. What is your test automation suite in that world? Actually, a very good question because I, I ranted a little bit on this on Twitter recently Yep, uh, because of all this. Oh God, I don't want to say the word, the testing and checking stuff. And I think to be successful in testing, you absolutely have to be a systems thinker and be able to see the whole picture and know how it all fits together. I see a lot of narrow-mindedness in some testing approaches or narrow-mindedness narrow, narrow sounds like an insult. I'll say narrow views. Uh, many people in testing view test automation as pure test functionality and it passes or it fails. Actually, many people view test automation as UI testing and you do some actions, it passes or it fails. I think, and I, when I think about most of the automation I've written, I've written very little pass-fail automation. I've written a lot of uh, tests, I'll call them tests for now and we'll discuss, that exercise the system in some way and then when they're done, I examine the system in order to figure out if what I did changed the state. Easiest example is I'll create and delete a thousand objects and then I'll check uh, memory, heap fragmentation, et cetera, and see if, if the cleanup things worked. Is that automation or is that a tool? The answer is it doesn't freaking matter. So I think when you're looking at, and to jump ahead here, uh, the answer is not, there's no, there's no pass-fail automation you're going to write for a system that Brent has described. Mm -mm. It's because it's customized. How do you tell if it's customized? Well, I'm going to uh, 
Wait, I'm going to write AI to analyze Brent's brain, and based on the output of that, I'll create an oracle that tells me whether this is... No, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. I am going to uh, go back. How do I know... I have to ask these questions. This is the fun part I mentioned earlier. How do I know that I'm solving your problem effectively? And what can I measure? What sort of analytics or instrumentation can I add that may tell you if there is, if Brent is trying to do the same act for some examples, and we can, we could brainstorm these a lot. I want to know how quickly he solves tasks. I want to know how many tasks he tries to do multiple times. I want to know, sorry, that, that made me think of something else, but I'll come back to it. Yep. I want to know, uh, how often does he use the system? I think if he comes back to it a lot, uh, he's finding it useful. I'll, I'm going to brainstorm a whole bunch of that stuff. I'm going to work. I'm going to design experiments, view which ones work, which ones don't. But it's all about analyzing not just Brent, but for every single user out there, what are some ways I can measure whether or not there is business or customer value from this? And that's my testing. That's my testing. I had so I've actually had some experience similar to the the world I'm forecasting. Okay, um, so I've mentioned multiple occasions my time in Bing. And one of my mentees at that time also ended up working in Bing. And before I joined, he wanted to meet because he really respected me. He, he knew me from, from my test management roles. Um, and he was a little surprised to hear that I was moving into a dev role. But he wanted to pull me aside and said, look, don't come here. And I'm like, what? Why? And he said, bugs don't matter. And now he was a fantastic tester. Okay. But his view was his job was to find bugs. And in the world where everything changes and there's an ML driven, a bug you find today just automatically fixed the next day. Right, um, he would find that he would open bugs like he had done in, in prior situations, and um, it just wasn't worth Dev's time to investigate. What they needed to understand, what the services they needed from their test team at that time, was what's the systemic bug. Like, what are we doing wrong such that this bug appeared, not what is the bug? Well, and the thing is, that's an action you can take that does accelerate the achievement of shippable quality. Yes. And, and not that entering a bug doesn't, uh, if it's a risk to that goal, to that goal of that role. A little rhyme there. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, you want to take – we need to look at taking larger actions. Yes. Now, Ish. the the other thing I want to talk about, and then I want to spend some time and quickly go through what we think on a detail focus in testing is different. Okay. Okay. Tell me what to do. One of the things I want to say is that in the world that we're in today, and especially in the world that we are going into, I am going to state that the idea that the test job is to provide information is dead. <laughs> okay, that is dead. Yeah, I have. The, I think you've, didn't I? Uh, 
I, I've pushed back on that before myself. Anyway, <laughs> we talked about that on the on. Sorry, we, I, I, uh, we talked I owe, about this on the Slack I, channel. I owe the three another shot because I mentioned it uh, an episode or two ago as well. Yes, I want to say that. So there's a model. I, I'm working this through uh, for a presentation I'm doing in my job um, to explain the maturity phases of data. And I realized, uh, given this, these topics, that it, it, it falls here, right? And that model is you collect, you inform, you recommend, and you act. Now, that's a maturity model. So if, uh, if, if you are a, a inexperienced in testing, then yeah, maybe I'll, what you're trying to do is figure out how do I get the information so that I can inform others, okay? But information is needed for a decision-making process and what for the world that we're going into where we are trying to be experts in customer quality and experts in terms of adjusting the system to, to make better code and reduce the number of times we need to iterate to achieve shippable quality, you have to be a master of recommending the next action to take. And I think... That's the next to, step for maturity for sure. Yes, honest. And just to hit a little bit on the tester as information provider, I think, again, that model works when the test role is a completely separate and siloed and maybe even not even in the same org building or continent as development, maybe that's fine. But if we look at, I think modern testing involves a tester, one who accelerates the achievement mm -hmm. of quality, being an embedded member, being the quality and testing expert on a feature team. And I think in that role, you cannot be just the information provider. It's, it's, for one, just not pulling your weight, but it's not leveraging your expertise to a, to an extent that's valuable to the team. And number two, in the world and the advancements that we are making on instrumentation and these ideas of A-B testing in the cloud, like if you are firm that that is test role and you aren't paying attention to what's happening, I am telling you right now today, you are moments away from your business team realizing they can automate you away. If all of your role is to inform on what works and what doesn't, once these guys realize you all you got to do is hook up an instrumentation stack and ship pilots and betas and hook in uh, continuous uh, integration, your value proposition is over. And I can tell you that if I came and worked for your company, I could light that up in a month. It's not that hard. Pay attention if you think that that's what your job is. I think if for any knowledge work role, any knowledge work role, if you think what you do is only narrowly defined, the same story holds true. Yeah. I think any knowledge work, and testers compare themselves to, uh, they think they're not knowledge work sometimes, but it is. It's like, it's a creative role. It's a role that requires a specializing generalist, a generalizing specialist, a T-shaped persona, tree-shaped persona, whatever you want to call it. If you are purely 
a quote functional tester. I don't even know what that means, but I've seen it, I've seen it written down before. Yep. Uh, yes, but you have to be broad. And I'm giving a talk, and probably by the time this goes out, it'll be tomorrow because this podcast will go out on Monday. Uh, the at the online testing conference on technical testing and what that means. And at the the plug is there only because like if you are only one thing, and the talks really about how to be how to have some breadth in what you do and how to provide value to their team. In fact, one of the points I'll make is that it doesn't matter how technical you are. It matters how valuable you are. Yet, you may need to be more technical to be more valuable. And what technical means, soapbox time, is that you use the techniques of the craft. That's it. So you should have multiple things you can do to accelerate the achievement of shippable quality, which in the way the world is moving means you're able to analyze and understand what the customer experience is. And if you can start by grepping log files, if you're, uh, that's, that's the collection phase. So, so <laughs> the, the four phases, collect, inform, recommend, act. And to Alan's point, like if you are in this inform world and, and you are a technical tester by his definition, great. That's a useful skill set. And I'm not articulating that the skill set is dead. I am articulating that the role of just informing using that skill set is dead. I fully agree. And and the wisest and the smartest amongst you, if you're in this world, are going to start focusing on going to the next maturity level and say, okay, my technical skill set is now an implementation. It's an implementation detail. No one cares. What I need to do, the way I add value, is be the expert on leveraging this data to provide valuable uh, recommendations with proof. Like, if we do this thing, we will improve this thing that you care about by N percent. Yeah, so it's data-driven recommendations. Yes, because that's the next place where Absolutely. you can add value and where your specialty ass- assists greatly. Yeah, and again, it can be, for those of you new to this, it can be looking at like, oh, I wonder if any customers are hitting this bug. And you go to your Google Analytics and you look it up and you, and if the data is not there, you go recommend you add the instrumentation or analytics data to find out how many customers are hitting that. Or if you go, we really need to know these things, go recommend that information is added then when you have the right information in order to make a conclusion based on data you can again don't just say here's the data recommend a solution recommend uh make a recommendation uh, i'm just ranting on top of yeah that, but yeah you get it but the data is there to that i don't want to make sure because i completely agree with alan's examples but recommend you add instrumentation and bolster that with what they're going to get out of it. Yeah. And right? as, as, you as a, have to frame your recommendations in terms of the ROI to the yeah. business. And to be clear, if I had a slight tangent, maybe not a tangent, for you test automators out there, let's stop stop writing automation. Write you rather than recommend it, go write that analytics yourself. Writing adding those instrumentation points yourself is the new test automation. Yeah. And that we've covered over and over. Oh yeah, I know, I know. But I'm piecing it into this conversation. A test harness, in my view, in the new world is just a load generator. Like (laughs) all of your validation should be coming from the product instrumentation. Let's go 
quickly. We don't do anything quickly, but we'll go for it. So let's talk about something more tac- tactical on, on what is modern testing. What's, what's a key thing that, that changes? In my mind, one key thing is code correctness is no longer anywhere close where someone of a testing skill set is useful to validate. Code correctness is much more effective and the domain knowledge is within the dev team. They need to own that. Sure. And it may be a brief in a passing moment in building a team. Uh, maybe it's a tester's role to uh, make sure it's being done, but yep. then, then they're out of the way. When I look at I, the way I look at it is you have I'm not going to go into the agile quadrants, but a lot of times it's the role of the testing quality expert to make sure it's all covered, but absolutely not to try and cover the whole quadrant. Just one of those things that fits into <laughs> like I may need to coach my team on writing better unit tests. I may need to hook up some help them or recommend they hook up some static analysis tools or uh, for for code correctness. Recommend unit tests are needed to be done. Yeah, but I'm, I'm and, gonna, and recommend that hey, the lack of unit tests is causing us to have to constantly reship. This is causing resources. I, I'm just saying. And then act, provide the set of resources that that sure. brings us up. And yeah, all I'm saying is the role of the quality and testing expert frequently includes making sure those things get done. But yes, then, but then it's not. But it's never their responsibility to do those things. Yes, it's not their responsibility to do those things. It may be their responsibility to make sure that they are done. Yeah, I think it is their responsibility to make sure they're done. Right, and then going back to calendar time is the single most important resource. This, this is that's the principle where I'm suggesting this. Like, okay. code correctness needs to be owned by the the dev resources. Uh, this handoff to 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 test. When, when understanding how to do a unit test framework and, and how to do TDD or BDD is not that hard, right? The, the tester should not willingly pick up the codependency loop we've talked about multiple Correct. times Correct. because that slows down and you're trying to accelerate. Two, bug debt should be zero at all times. Yes. Bug debt is the single biggest cause of time being wasted in an engineering team. I agree. The and second it, biggest one is dependencies, but the number one is bug debt. So I have, and I'm, I'm not, because I own like 50 zillion different services. Uh, did I ever tell you my newfound definition of what services are at Unity? No. Because it's traditional things that you and I think of, like ads and analytics. But really, it's any parts of Unity that don't work when the internet's down. Any parts of Unity that don't work when the internet is Including down. Including like the website, uh, anything that connects with anything like our, um, uh, anything in the cloud. Okay. So, uh, but I, so what that means is I own a lot of desktop components too. And even in those, a couple down so far, some to go, uh, working off zero bugs. If there are bugs active, they are actively being worked on. Yes. So they are, the bugs are basically on the Kanban board. They're being addressed and fixed, but otherwise they're, they either are there or they're not. You either have proof you need to fix the bug or right. you don't. If you don't, so, you defer. When I got the team to uh, – really interesting, they killed all these old bugs. The reactions were great. It's like I was really scared when we started this. This is like within like five minutes. 
I really felt bad killing all these. Now it's done. I feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean... <laughs> if they're important, they'll come back. Anyway, I wanted to share that little story. A I bug, fully agree. A bug and, removed from the database is easily yeah, 20 but, minutes safe. But I guess the point I wanted to make is... A lot of teams doing just pure services, of course. They just, when a bug comes in, they deal with it or they forget it. Yep. But I think it's absolutely an achievable goal for anything you're working on. I think it's it's part of, I think it's part of modern testing is working from zero bugs all the time is part of how we ship. Yes, absolutely. Automation. What do we automate? Not rhetorical. What do we automate? All the things that should be automated? A hundred percent of those. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't automate anything that's pass fail functional testing. I don't want to automate. I'd rather I'd rather discover that through analytics. I want to or or unit tests or we automate unit tests, of course. Yep. That that actually is, in my view, the the best high level answer. But the, we are but not, the details of that depend. We so. are not in the world where we we say we automate everything. Now, unit tests, yeah, unit tests should be automated. TDD type things where where at a very low level code, right, as you write enough code, if you don't have unit tests to protect you, then the it's a very good chance that the uh, integration and the contracts between components will fall, fall down or fall apart. That needs to be automated. But here's the deal. Dev does that. Oh, of course. Yeah. Right. What other tests? Oh, so maybe the question is, what do testers or testing quality experts automate? Right. I, I hold it is no longer true, uh, this, this, uh, this dogma of we're a test, we must automate. Or <laughs> there's a whole role of, oh, I'm a test automator. I'm a test automation engineer. What do we automate? What we automate up front is, is quite, I mean, the next drill down is we automate those things where the ROI of automating up, up front is higher than the ROI of relying on our instrumentation systems to tell us where the problem sure. is, right? Now, that's very context sensitive. The, yeah, the, the load tool I, I mentioned earlier, I need to create 1,000, 10,000, a million objects and delete them and make sure the system's going to handle this because over the course of a couple days in the real world, this will happen. I want to do this in a tight loop so I can see if there's a problem before uh, our customers see it after two days. You automate those things that would be critical failures, mm -hmm. cause data loss. Those are things that need to belong in a, in a, in a production or a preventative suite. You automate those things where knowing too late harms the business. Again, ca calendar time is critical in this world. Got it. Right? But is that everything? No. You do spin your automation, again, much like what you were talking about, the, the test harness that generates load. You spend your time automating validation off of the instrumentation suite. That's where your value really is in this new world, is to understand, uh, here's a new term, a new data science -y term for the podcast, anomaly detection. 
an, you, you create these new signals, you, you hook them up to anomaly detection is the, is the current practice. Sure, I get it. Where you're looking, where you're saying, look, we got all this instrumentation, we got all this signal, I'm going to hook it up to ML to tell me where I need to focus my attention. Awesome. All right. What's next? Tools. Tool building, I think, is the next big thing. What tools do we build okay. Today. That, that, I think that ties into the, the previous uh, bullet pretty well, depending on where you blur the line between a tool and a test. Well, so first and foremost, you do not build a test harness in today's world. No. No. There's a lot, and, and there's like, a lot of things you don't build anymore. You don't. Like, it's done. It's out there. You, much like Alan's mail situation, you go out and you find a test harness yeah, that Yeah, you think works. about what's the problem I need to solve Yep, and figure out what solves that problem for you. It's the same thing. And there's a, there's, there is a solution out there. For example, uh, we didn't talk about it. Looks like, uh, looks like our fine quality way of producing – Advertising may actually result in a in a sale for Cobaton. Now, Cobaton, this is not intended to be a plug, but Cobaton solves a big problem yeah. for for in in it's the modern a world. Problem people have. Right. <laughs> okay. What's next? The last one. The last one is knowledge sharing and community. Oh. Is critical in this world. Why? Because to reduce calendar time, you cannot rely on each individual hire coming aboard, learning its soup to nuts every time. They have to be able to connect very rapidly with the people who know. And I think it's also... And that why, of course, was an elaborate why, not a I don't believe you why. <laughs> I think acceleration frequently requires innovation, and innovation comes from ideas meeting each other, and one of the most efficient ways for ideas to meet each other is through community and collaboration. But it's, yes, and it's, but it's also, well, it's, it's probably the same thing. I'll tell you that today in my job, the number one thing that irritates me just often is I know that I'm about to write code and it's going to take me about three hours. And I know someone in this company has already written what I'm about to write. But I'm going to continue to write what I'm about to write because I I cannot figure out how I find that guy. I know that if I did, he'd give me his code. So what I want is in a world of in a world where maybe it's internal only because the code is proprietary, but there are tools that have indexed and walked all the code in the company and then as I'm writing the code, it figures out what problem I'm trying to solve and suggests snippets or blocks or functions from around the company. Right. But or until we have that, setting an expectation that 
you are not to know everything. Right. But you, except for the index of who knows. There's that sick feeling of I'm doing this work. I know I don't have to. I, I, I know I know it's been done before, but I have no way to know what I don't know, so I have to write it myself. Yep. And then the other one, the last thing I have on here is really more of a, a realization. Shipping small batches of independent code is in optimizing your test strategy around that and evaluating the customer quality around these small batches of code that are continuously shipping is absolutely the best way to accelerate and remove risk from your system. Interesting you mentioned that. And I know where this is going to be one of our longer podcasts, but I know of a team that was shipping uh, a web service weekly and they got some feedback from customers that said, hey, we're getting an update every week and it's bu- and it's they're buggy. And their response was, okay, we'll ship every two weeks. My response would have been, okay, let's ship every day or figure or realistically figure out the what was going on there to slow down the right parts of the system to make sure they got a customer shouldn't unless there's a new feature shouldn't notice when they get these updates. But the fact that they were shipping, they were getting more bugs never release made them think, and I think they took the wrong action. I think it's, I think the problem just magnifies if you don't fix the root cause, just decide you're going to ship every day. That is a horrible decision because now what you have is you've given an additional week for PMs to add a bunch of features. And it's not small batches. It's not attacking the problem. Right. Right. It's a sh- it's a very short-sighted and very ill-advised, and uh, it's going to snowball into further problems until they identify a root cause. What I would do in that situation Quit. is I would say, okay, let's look at the customer feedback. Now let's go look at the telemetry and figure out how we detect how they are um, – how do we detect the signal that correlates to their feedback? They say it's constantly buggy. So how do we detect this in our, in our instrumentation? Yeah. If we we look at the customer, we talk to the customer. That's actually something new in the modern world. Testers talk to the customer. Yeah, They talk to the customer, and you figure out what path there is, and you look at the instrumentation to figure out how you detect this. Okay, number one. Yeah, number two, bunch. you add instrumentation if things are missing. Number three, you release daily. Until you see those signals falling down, your releases are only bug fixes. And until sure. you see that stable. And step zero in there yep. is what? talk to the customer. What do you mean by buggy? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that was part of the, the, the talking to the customer. And you want to look for what are the bugs we can detect in the signal and what are sort of aesthetic preferences with the customer. Now, both are important, but I'm imagining that in your scenario, buggy means things yeah, like I, I don't it's know. too I don't, slow or I, I, actually I don't type know. this it, thing it and mean, I keep getting But the errors. point is it can mean a, uh, it can yeah. mean a lot of things. There are better modern approaches to this than taking the risk. And, and if there's anything that I could say that if 
to any business leader. Like it, it, it is, I didn't expect it. When I tried it out, I was surprised. And then I now understand why. Like you dramatically reduce the risk of your product by having a strategy that, that reacts to instrumentation and by shipping all of the time. Yes. Small batches for the win. Absolutely. All right. So thanks for listening. Yes. Yeah, we yeah. appreciate that. Hey, I am uh, Alan. And I'm Brent. See you next time. Bye. Bye.